Cardinal Jock, thank you very much indeed. Jock and I spent some considerable time rehearsing that reading yesterday afternoon, and there were some very tricky words in there, and I think you did extremely well. Well done. Do please let's keep our Bibles open at that passage, uh, because there's much good fruit in it. But of course, as always, we need the Lord's help. So will you bow with me as I pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for the privilege of an open Bible. Help us, Lord, not to despise it. Lord, in these days of pandemic, when people are thinking about eternal issues, we pray that you would turn our minds back to your holy and unchanging word with fresh attention. Please be with speaker and hearer alike. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, for the benefit of those who are tuning in online who are with us for the first time, we're looking at the life of King David, which is the most detailed account uh, of a single human life in all of ancient literature. And I think regulars here know by now that we're not doing this as an interesting historical exercise. Now, the reason that we're taking this fascinating journey is because David was chosen by God to be king. And uh, each week, as we learn about why God did this and how God did it, (coughs) so we're learning more about how the God of the Bible plans to work in the lives of men and women today. Now, the theme of the passage, I think, and and indeed the theme of our service this morning, is patience. So, despite the most intense provocation, when David has, as it were, the ideal opportunity to strike back at Saul, he shows the most remarkable patience. But uh, before we look at the passage more closely, I think it's important to say up front that patience is a very important Bible word. And it's significant in Scripture for at least two reasons. First, it's important because it's the way that God describes himself. Uh, So think of that marvellous moment in Exodus chapter 34 when uh, Moses asks God to reveal his glory. And you remember, don't you, that God responds with those amazing and wonderful words, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And in the New Testament, we find that that phrase, slow to anger, is translated as either patient or patience. That verse in Exodus, I think, is teaching us something really important about patience, which is that men and women have provoked Almighty God. They're still provoking him today. But God has been surprisingly slow to react. He's been extremely patient with us. Why God has done that, we'll see a little bit later. But the first thing to remember this morning is that patience is an attribute of God. The God of the Bible 
is extremely patient. But then the, the second reason that patient is such, patience is such an important word in Scripture is because it's a, a part of authentic Christian character. That's why in his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul says that patience is part of the fruit of the Spirit. And what Paul means by including patience in that wonderful list is that a patient person is someone in whom God is at work so that other people can see it. But of course today uh, we have to be honest, don't we, and say that patience has fallen on rather hard times. Not only is it difficult to find... But it seems, doesn't it, that biblical patience is no longer considered to be a virtue. So outside the church, uh, patience is considered to be a sign of weakness. Uh, You only need to spend five minutes on the roads in Cape Town to be reminded of that. And of course in the workplace, you know that patience is very rare indeed. So the new employee who takes too long to learn the ropes, he won't last long, will he? Because the boss is impatient for results. And inside the church, in the interest of appealing to the culture, we've tended to confuse patience with tolerance. Tolerance for beliefs which are often profoundly unbiblical. And that's left many people, I think, confused about the identity and message of the church. So I think it's fair to say that where patience is concerned, we need help. And I suggest to you that 1 Samuel 24 is the right medicine to get us back on track. Let me begin by offering you a definition. My Bible dictionary defines patience as a God-given restraint in the face of opposition or oppression. A God-given restraint in the face of opposition or oppression. Now that's helpful because it tells me straight away that the Bible sees patience as something supernatural. It's something we don't actually have unless God gives it to us. And with that in mind, I want to show you that this passage illustrates biblical patience for us excuse me in three specific ways first of all it shows us the perspective of patience or patient people because you see if we're going to demonstrate the patience which God expects of every Christian we are going to have to learn to see things from God's point of view Second, it shows us the power of patience. As we've already said, David is spectacularly patient with Saul. Uh, Humanly speaking, David has every reason not to be patient with him. But he is. And it's very striking in the passage that David's patience breaks through Saul's hatred so that to everyone's amazement, Saul is reduced to tears. And then thirdly, we get a glimpse here of the purpose of patience. 
Because, of course, patience is not just about putting up with being mistreated. It's got a very serious purpose in the Bible, and we'll look at that towards the end. So, firstly, then, the perspective of patience in verses 1 to 7. Now, as we've seen before, what characterises David's experience at this point in his life is suffering. Uh, So far in the story, we've seen that by disobeying God's word, Saul has failed to meet the golden rule for Israel's king. Uh, So right from the very beginning, God said the king must obey God's word. If you want a reference on that, it's Deuteronomy 17, verse 18 and following. Saul hasn't done that. So, because of his disobedience, God has decided to take the kingdom away from Saul and put David on the throne instead. Saul, on the other hand, flatly refuses to accept God's decision. So, for the last few few chapters, we've been witnessing the extraordinary situation where the king who's been rejected by God has been hunting down the king chosen by God and trying to assassinate him. Now, it's extraordinary because we would actually expect the opposite, wouldn't we? It almost seems as if God has forgotten what he'd done about David, anointing him and setting him apart as king. And yet, and yet, at every turn, there's evidence that God has got the situation perfectly under control. And the verse that I think probably captures this best is in chapter 23. Uh, Because we haven't studied chapter 23 together, you might like to just glance back to chapter 23 and verse 14, second half of the verse, where we read, Day after day Saul searched for him, for David, but God did not give David into his hands. Now think about that. It's telling us that God was perfectly aware of David's predicament. God didn't give David over to Saul. And yet equally, for his own good reasons, God chose not to remove the threat. And in our passage today, chapter 24, verse 2, we've got more of the same thing, only even more intensely. Because you read there that Saul has set out with 3,000 chosen men. The phrase chosen men is telling us that these weren't ordinary everyday soldiers. Presumably, they were what you and I today would think of as the SAS or the Navy SEALs or something like that. Saul has enlisted 3,000 of them to hunt David down. Now, from the previous chapter, we know that David has only got 600 men with him. So, David is outnumbered 5 to 1. Things are starting to look pretty desperate. But then, verse 3, Saul needs a bathroom break. And he just so happens to choose the very cave where David and his men are hiding. Now, just for a moment, 
Imagine yourself as one of David's men. What would you be thinking at this point? I mean, there you are, you've been pursued by Saul for months. Uh, You've no idea whether you're ever going to see your family again. You know that you're massively outnumbered and Saul just happens to come into the cave. He's alone and putting it politely, he's vulnerable. Now what would you say? Well, David's men knew precisely what to say, verse 4. The men said, Surely this is the day the Lord spoke of, when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, when did the Lord say that? It's important to know this if we're going to kind of get on the same wavelength as David's men. Well, in the previous chapter, 23 verse 4, The Lord said to David, I'm going to give the Philistines into your hand, which is pretty close to saying, I'm going to give your enemy into your hands. And I suggest to you that by repeating that phrase in chapter 24, the writer of 1 Samuel is making the point that from the perspective of David's men, Saul is now no different to the Philistines. So what they're basically saying to David is this, here is your enemy. He's no better than a Philistine. Kill him. Kill him while you've got the chance. Retaliate. But that's not David's perspective, is it? What is David's perspective? Well, the answer is that David sees Saul from God's point of view. How do we know that? Well, when David creeps forward and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe, he's overwhelmed by guilt, isn't he? And I think his reaction perhaps to us is a little bit surprising because it seems as if he hasn't really done anything wrong. But in 1 Samuel, we've already discovered that the royal robe is a symbol of the kingdom itself. And by cutting off a piece of it, what David did could have been seen as David asserting his claim to the throne. Now, what was going through David's mind when he was cutting the robe, we don't know. But what we do know is that as soon as he's done it, he's overwhelmed with guilt. So, verse 6, David says to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. In other words, God has given the kingdom to Saul, and it's up to God to take it from him in his own time and in his own way. Therefore, I must be patient. Even if being patient is going to involve me in more suffering. I think when we put all of this together, I think what the writer of 1 Samuel wants us to realise is that contrary to what we would expect or like, God's kingdom comes through suffering. But of course we don't like that. It's not new, of course. 
So when uh, Jesus explains to his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law that he must be killed and after three days rise again, Peter can't understand it. He actually can't accept it. But as you'll remember from our studies in Mark's Gospel, Jesus says the same thing three times. And he also says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross, suffer and follow me. And that's because, you see, it's always been the way that the kingdom of God comes through suffering. Can I suggest that too much Western Christianity today won't accept that? Nevertheless, it's always been the reality. So, one example. In 1950, the communist regime in China uh, expelled all foreign missionaries from the country and it began to persecute the Christians in the house churches, often in the most extreme and bizarre ways. And at the time, it looked as if that was the end of all effective gospel work in China. And uh, shortly afterwards, uh, a dear friend of ours, Dick Lucas, was on a train uh, in England and he found himself in the same carriage as one of these expelled missionaries. And he began commiserating with him about this terrible turn of events in China. But the missionary corrected him And he explained, no, no, it's quite wrong for a Christian to complain about this because this is God's way. And how right he was. Because, you see, under the intense heat of persecution, the Chinese church grew from almost nothing in 1950 to becoming the largest and fastest growing church in the world today. Now, you see... That is the perspective we need in order to be patient in the face of our own suffering. Jesus does promise us a crown in the end, but only if we're willing to bear the cross on the way. And in the meantime, we've got to learn to be patient. So are you? Are you patient? Or are you actually impatient when suffering comes along for being a Christian? Do you actually in those moments withdraw from church, withdraw from your Christian friends, allow the world to press you into its anti-God mould? You've got to be patient. Second thing we learn in this chapter is the power of patience. Verses 8 to 15. Now, what I think is so very remarkable about David in this middle section of the chapter is that he's not bitter. When he emerges from the cave in verse 8, we read there that David bowed down before Saul, he prostrated himself with his face to the ground, and in verse 11, he even calls Saul, my father. Now, how on earth is it possible for David to be so very gracious to this man who's basically been hunting him down like an animal? Well, in our very first study together, you may remember that we saw that 
in these ancient texts, there is sometimes uh, a key verse in the middle of the passage which holds the key to the whole thing. And uh, in our passage today, we find that key in verse 12, where David says to Saul, look at verse 12, really important verse, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Now, friends, can I say that that verse is telling us three things about the power of patience. Firstly, it's reminding us that there is actually a judge. That in itself is very important. Because you and I see evidence of injustice all around us every day, and our instinctive response is to want to fight back, isn't it? Why is that? Well, it's because being made in the image of God means that we're made with a hunger for justice. We're made that way. But there's a problem. What is it? Well, a few years ago, a man called Arthur Miller wrote a famous play called The Death of a Salesman. And in that play, one of the characters uh, describes why you and I have this tremendous urge to retaliate against injustice. This character says this, quote, We live our whole lives as if we're moving towards a verdict, but there's no one on the bench. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying we're wired to hate injustice. We want to see it punished, but there's no judge. So we have to take matters into our own hands. We've got to retaliate. And yet David reminds us in verse 12 that contrary to what many people think, there is actually someone on the bench. There is a judge. I think that one of the many things that the Bible says about God, that this is one of the things that Christians forget about him. We think of God as our maker, we think of God as our redeemer, we think of God as our father, but many people forget God is our judge. The second thing that David tells us in verse 12 is that God the judge will avenge all wrongs and injustice. What a relief! I mean, it is marvellous, of course, to see so many Christian agencies today doing wonderful work um, to combat evil and oppression. Some of you will know the agency, The Voice of the Martyrs. Um, It's a terrific work they do defending the rights of persecuted Christians. But it's one thing, isn't it, to defend the victims of persecution, but what about the persecutors? What's going to happen to them? Sometimes it seems, doesn't it, as if they're going to get off scot-free with murder, quite literally. And yet, that's not how David sees it. In our passage, David is absolutely confident that the Lord will avenge the wrongs committed against him. And then thirdly, David says in verse 12, 
my hand will not touch you. In other words, verse 12 is telling us that for the people of God, for us today as Christian people, retaliation and revenge are out. These things are for God, not for us. Now, maybe it's a little difficult for us to grasp why David finds these three great truths to be sufficient to override any urge he might have to take revenge against Saul. So perhaps one New Testament reference will be helpful. Turn in your Bibles quickly, please, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Trying to keep your fingers warm by turning the pages. Let me hear those pages turning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, Some of you know this passage, but it it will probably be unfamiliar to a few of you, particularly if you're a new Christian. Paul here is writing to a church that's being persecuted. We pick it up at verse 6, where he says this. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his holy angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marvelled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Now that is a terrifying prospect, isn't it? But Paul says, you see, that's what's going to happen to people who persecute Christians and who stubbornly refuse the grace of the gospel. If you've never thought about this before, I do commend that passage to you. You might like to find a quiet moment later this afternoon and read it thoughtfully for yourself again. But for now, I want us to see that the certainty and the purity of God's judgment liberates you and me from any need to retaliate ourselves. And just to ram the point home, I'd like to share with you a quotation from uh, one of John Piper's books, and I'd like you to see what he has to say about this. I hope it'll appear on the screen. This comes from a book called Battling Unbelief. John Piper says this, God's promised vengeance overrides our personal craving for retaliation. God's promise says, yes, an outrage has been committed against you. Yes, it deserves to be severely punished. Yes, the person has not yet experienced that punishment. But no, you may not be the one to punish. And you may not go on relishing personal retribution. Why? Because God will see to it that justice is done. God will repay. You can't improve on his justice. 
He sees every angle of the evil done against you, far better than you can see it. His justice will be more thorough than any justice you could administer. And then I love this. If you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge. Well, that's memorable, isn't it? So can you see that the power of patience is knowing that a day is coming when God will avenge all wrongs perfectly. So we don't have to. And that means we can be patient. And I, for one, find that very liberating. We'll come back to 1 Samuel as we consider, thirdly, the purpose of patience. Verses 16 to 22. Because The effect of David's patience on Saul, I think, is truly astonishing. Because until now, Saul's heart has been full of hatred towards David. He's been plotting, he's been scheming against him. But look at verse 16 again, will you? When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And Saul wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. Saul weeping. Now we weren't expecting that. But you see, that's not actually the end of it. Look down to verse 20, where Saul says, within earshot of his troops, I know that you, David, will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. I think it's important to see here that Saul's change of attitude hasn't been extracted by force. David hasn't got a knife to his throat. He simply repaid evil with good. He's shown Saul the same kind of patience that God has shown to you and me and which God expects us to show to other people. And suddenly, Saul acknowledges God's justice. And I think that's teaching us, isn't it, that this kind of patience is an extremely powerful witness. But I want you to notice two final things as we come to a close. Firstly, there's nearly always a cost to being patient. At the end of the passage, we're told that Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now, it's important to see there, I think, that um, because David gave up his opportunity to get back at Saul, he remained a fugitive. So there, there was a real cost to David's patience. And in exactly the same way, when you and I show patience to those who've sinned against us, we nearly always have to pay a price of some kind ourselves. So, for example, suppose somebody slanders you. There they are, they're out there, and they're saying unkind and untrue things about you to other people. Now, that's happened to people in this church, so this is not theoretical, this is intensely practical. You've been slandered, but you choose not to retaliate. 
Now, in that moment, most of your non-Christian friends will think you're foolish or weak or something like that, but you've made that decision. I'm not going to retaliate. You've decided to be patient. That is distinctively Christian. It's the right thing to do. But you see, there is a price to being patient in that situation. Why? Because whatever's been said about you is still out there, isn't it? And there is a sense in which you've been shamed. You've been disgraced. So you pay a price for being patient. But you see, we can pay the price, can't we? Because we know how patient God has been with us. Because we've all sinned against God. We've all wronged him in countless different ways. We deserve his wrath. But on the cross, Jesus not only bore God's wrath in our place, but he also bore our shame and our disgrace. And because Jesus paid the highest price for God's patience with you and with me, who are we to be impatient with those who have wronged us? So patience has a cost, but it also has a purpose. One last cross-reference. Just turn, please, to 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, famous passage on this subject. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Two Peter chapter three verse eight. Peter writes, "But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone." to come to repentance. So you see, if we ask, as many people do ask, why is God so patient when there's so much evil in the world? The answer's obvious, isn't it? He wants people to repent. So have you? Have you ever said to God, all these years I've been living for me, my wants, my needs, and I've pushed you out of my life. I am so sorry. Please forgive me. I don't want to live like that anymore. Thank you for your patience with me. Thank you that on the cross, Jesus bore the shame and disgrace that was due to me. And so today, I surrender my life to you as Saviour and Lord from this day forward. Have you ever said something like that to God? It's an extremely serious question. Because as we read on in 1 Samuel, we discover that Saul never did that. He never truly repented. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 26, he's out trying to kill David all over again. But you see, he did have the opportunity to repent, didn't he? 
Because David's patience was an act of divine grace that just for a tiny moment broke through Saul's bitterness to help him see his own evil. And you see, that was the moment, wasn't it, for Saul to repent and to ask God for forgiveness, but he didn't do it. And because he didn't do it, he stands as a very serious warning to all those people who flirt with the gospel today without actually ever surrendering to King Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. But we are not. Indeed, we're often the opposite, quick to become angry, slow to show love and faithfulness. Thank you for recording for us the supernatural patience of David, which anticipates the perfect patience of the Lord Jesus. Help us this week to remember that Jesus has paid the price of your wonderful patience with us, bearing our shame and our disgrace on the cross. So Lord, in an increasingly impatient world, we ask that you would give us the patience we need with those who oppose us for being Christians in order that they might come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And we ask all this for Christ our Saviour's sake.